Hello, my name is Dr. Barbara Sturm. Welcome to the Dr. Barbara Sturm podcast. The first four episodes of this new show are all about the menopause and will be with me and also with Mariella Fostra. Mariella made one of the first TV programs talking about her own menopause in 2018. She's the author of the excellent book Cracking the Menopause. She was recently a guest on my skin school talking about the menopause and skin. And so I'm so delighted to spend more time with her. <laughs> we can't get enough of it. <laughs> In the series, we have already looked at the basics of menopause with Dr. Sharon Malone. In later episodes, we will be talking about menopause in the workplace and the effect menopause can have on relationships. But this second episode is on HRT. You know, I'm not really into taking medication. I frankly wouldn't even bother with my GP. I tried one tablet, but it's not for me. I had such bad symptoms that I would have taken anything. To guide us through this episode is Dr. Paula Briggs. Dr. Briggs is chair-elect for the British Menopause Society. She's devoted to the delivery of women's health care, research and education. We are delighted she could take part. This conversation is absolutely packed with useful information, so you may want to listen more than once and even make notes. Dr. Briggs joined us from her home in Liverpool in the UK and started by talking about her own experience of menopause. I had a really unusual um, menopause experience. I went to a meeting abroad in The Hague and after about the third day I came down and said to my colleague I haven't slept for three days and I was about 45 at the time and she said darling the sisterhood will help you out and she gave me her oestrogen gel which I started using so actually in retrospect I had an assignment to hand in and I think I was just anxious but I therefore didn't ever experience any menopausal symptoms and I've stayed on the same HRT since then so I'm now very, very close to 58. And I've been really fortunate because I haven't ever experienced hot flushes, night sweats, anxiety, or any of the other common menopausal symptoms that many women do experience. So you only take oestrogen as a gel since ever, ever since 45? I have Marina and I've used Marina for contraception. And then it provided me with a really good way of managing the menopause transition. And, you know, I firmly believe that Mirena is fit and forget. It is very intense hormone inside the endometrial cavity. So it's the best way of providing robust endometrial protection. And I've been bleed free and symptom free since then. It's so interesting here you talk about that, Paula. I had the Mirena coil and uh, then was told that I had to get rid of that in order if I was thinking of even starting on, on HRT at all. And I say that only to point out that there is so much conflicting advice out there about HRT, about what you can and can't take, about the ways in which you should take it. I mean, it is absolutely mind-blowingly baffling and, and that made even more difficult, I suppose, because an awful lot of women don't feel comfortable talking about it. So, you know, finding a path through is is, is, is almost impossible. First of all, why are we in that situation? Why is there so much, you know, in, on, on so many other, you know, things that happen to our bodies over the years, we, we have clarity. Why is menopause and the treatment and support for menopause such a quagmire? I think it's really difficult to understand that. I've been delivering menopause management since the early 1990s and I have, you know, genuinely I've never seen another specialty go through such peaks and troughs. And I think 
There have been certain things that have caused um, a huge uh, disruption to care, like the Women's Health Initiative study in 2002. Um, And it took about 15 years to recover from that. Women genuinely believed that they would be at an increased risk of breast cancer, heart attacks, strokes, GPs also were frightened. Um, And the NICE guidance in 2015 was extremely good and it redressed a lot of those myths and misperceptions. But I think we can't underestimate the impact of delivering that type of information. It sticks and it sticks with generations. And we do have some great education and great information out there, but it's just, I think, confused by other perpetuated myths and you know I feel desperately sorry for women because you know back to your story Marina is the best way in my opinion to manage the transition from reproductive to post-reproductive life with least disruption. Yeah and and I mean and that's what I've heard and I'm quite forceful about these things and I still didn't manage to kind of push through but um, I I wonder if we can unpick because you said so much in that answer and I know that Barbara has got a huge global following so uh, some of what you're saying is is quite UK specific and some of it it relates to America so I just think let's just lay it out so so basically HRT uh, became widely used in the 1960s ish didn't it and particularly in America where it was embraced with gusto uh, I would say because at the time it was seen to be the way in which women would carry on having sex with their husbands so it was you know if you want to stay young and pretty for your hubby uh, take HRT so it was embraced hugely I I think there was a large percentage of women were on it nearly up to 50% of women in the US and then in 2002 came out this Women's Health Initiative survey. What went wrong with that? What what was it and what went wrong? So a lot of the women who were um, recruited into that study were much older. So they had the risks that would be um, associated with a more aging population. So some of these older women were commencing HRT when they already had established cardiovascular disease. And the lifelong risk for all women to develop breast cancer is very high. So I suppose, relatively speaking, if you still haven't had breast cancer by your late 60s, your risk could be viewed to be higher. Um, And it was very specific um, hormone preparations that were used. It wasn't all different types of HRT. And I think we now understand that the progestogen um, can influence the risk associated with taking HRT. And so the survey came out, it was, as I understand, it was also published prematurely, that it wasn't signed off by a lot of the experts who were involved in it. And overnight, because there's nothing the media loves better than a than a bad headline, overnight across the globe, basically HRT equals breast cancer. And, and you know, women just stopped taking it, didn't they? I mean, I think almost, almost entirely. Uh, and that was across America, across the UK, and I presume in, in Germany and uh, around the world. So what happened after that? And why has that not translated down to the people who should be prescribing it for women, for example. I think in the UK, I don't know what the figures are in Germany, but in the UK, we've got about 550,000 women now. It's doubled in the in the last three years. 550,000 women on HRT and about 16 to 18 million menopausal women who aren't on HRT now. Not all of them are at risk, increased risk of breast cancer. So the question is anyway, how big is the risk, you know, number one? And how big is the risk 
for women who don't take HRT to, to get like joint problems and, and, and other issues and anxiety and insomnia and, you know, getting maybe into depression and all sorts of things. So, you know, I think everyone's got their own plans about how they manage their menopause. And the most important thing is that women have the right information on which to base their decision. I think it's really difficult for women to know where to go to get the right information. Things have almost swung entirely in the opposite direction. I think we're seeing women who now feel frightened about not taking HRT, frightened of, say, for example, getting osteoporosis or getting Alzheimer's. And there isn't any robust evidence to suggest that taking HRT will prevent Alzheimer's. There's some really good research ongoing, but you know, that was included in the recent documentary, but it's not based on any, uh, any facts. And all we can say really is that HRT doesn't increase the risk of Alzheimer's. No, uh, but it does help with osteoporosis. I mean, definitely, uh, you know, yeah. dramatically and, and also with heart, heart conditions, doesn't it? Oestrogen is cardioprotective. So it started early enough on, but if women have established cardiovascular risk factors like um, high cholesterol, atheroma, hypertension, then those things need to be addressed before they start HRT in order to access the benefits. And women who've had heart attacks and strokes already are more complicated. So I feel that the situation that we're in at the moment is that we need to really take a little bit of a step back to provide women with the right information and to empower them to make the choice that's right for them, whatever that happens to be. But how do we do that? Because as, as, as Barbara was asking there, you know, first of all, I suppose, I mean, there's so many things. First of all, we need to establish what the risks actually are. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you say it's gone the opposite way. But I would argue when there's 550,000 women in the UK on HRT and 16 million at least not, mm-hmm. and, and that differential is echoed uh, pretty much across the globe, I, I don't think it's swung in any way in, in the opposite direction. There's a sort of incremental steps. And, and, and the fact of the matter is that there are very few alternative alternatives to HRT. So why don't we set up, first of all, what the disadvantages uh, of HRT are, what the risk factors actually are? Okay, so for women who commence treatment at the right stage, which is in the perimenopause, the menopause transition, if they're otherwise healthy, the risks are absolutely minimal. The difficulty I think is when women are older and they may have had perhaps some sort of health issue, like they might have had breast cancer, but they might still be symptomatic. I think there are messages coming through that it doesn't matter if you've had breast cancer. Well, of course, it does matter. It matters very much because most breast cancers are hormone dependent. And I think what's on the horizon are newer neuroendocrine antagonist drugs, which will manage hot flushes, night sweats, difficulty sleeping. So for that population, I feel that the message should be there are things coming to market in the near future which will be able to help you. And you can use non-hormonal prescribable alternatives. I'm not saying they're great and they don't necessarily have the same additional benefits but I think we really do need to be careful about the messages that are being um, given to women. But why are you worried about it then? But what, why are you, because, because obviously first of all you have to go to a doctor. Yeah. Secondly you have to persuade the doctor that you're menopausal. Yeah. Thirdly you have to hope that that doctor has been trained in menopause and might recognise some of the symptoms you're talking about. Yeah. Fourthly you then need to persuade them 
to give you HRT because, you know, for example, I was told at that, that I was, you know, probably Perry, might have been Perry, but there's no point in me taking anything at that point, you know, because it wasn't established yet. You know, and my experience is not unique by any manner of means. So, you know, the obstacles to getting HRT are still so enormous that the idea of turning around to women and going, oh, sometime in the future... Uh, there yeah, will be no, these that, other drugs that can help alleviate those things. No, I mean, some no, of the not, s- some of the um, stories that you know are being uploaded onto menopause mandate at the moment are just they're heartbreaking, and yeah. and it, it it just beggars belief that that now here in the twenty first century, knowing what we know, which is as you just said that that HRT for the majority of women who started at the right time will be yeah. beneficial and won't yeah. be bad for their health. Why yeah. on earth is nobody? telling these women that? Why are they going into doctor surgeries and not being told? I mean, you're involved with the British Menopause Society and, and you know, it must be, I don't understand why you're so sanguine about it, to be honest. Uh, so, no, I think, Mariella, we're talking about completely different populations. You're talking about otherwise healthy women who should be able to access treatment, whatever treatment they choose, and that lightly is HRT because that's the best treatment to manage menopausal symptoms. And I'm talking about women with established risk factors like breast cancer. So I totally agree with you that women who are in the perimenopause should not have to wait for HRT. That's the time to treat them. And I think there's lots of good work going on to try to support GPs. It's a difficult job. They have to be good at everything. So I would see my role as chair-elect of the British Menopause Society, working with the Medical Advisory Committee, to be providing the right education from a national organisation. But locally at Liverpool, I see my role as being a mentor for GPs so that they can call me, and they do call me frequently, to say, is this the right thing? We can't change this overnight. Um, we're working really hard to make it easier for women to get the right care. So what do you think um, the contraindication would be for taking HRT? You mentioned maybe if you had breast cancer before, but what about if there's breast cancer in your family? That's a very interesting point because I've just received an email from a practice nurse today saying this lady has a very strong family history of breast cancer. I know she can't have HRT what can I give her? So, you know, I respond back, that doesn't contraindicate HRT, this lady can have, and I give several different examples of what that patient can have. But, you know, that's one of those myths, and I don't really know why it's so entrenched. But, you know, a family history of breast cancer does not contraindicate HRT. So that is very important. So what are the different types of HRT and which one suits each So let's maybe do a little bit of like the different types. And Yep. So there are three hormones that are important. Estrogen. We need progestogen to protect endometrial tissue. And then there's testosterone. And we know that female ovaries produce a lot of testosterone. And it's a really important hormone for women. So there's choices as regards delivery routes. Women may choose oral treatments and I think they are less often recommended because oral oestrogen is associated with an increase in the risk of blood clots. But And isn't that also because it goes through your liver? 
Yes, yeah, so it has a it has a bigger metabolic impact. However, you know, if it's an otherwise healthy woman who's slim, who has normal blood pressure, doesn't smoke, actually the oral route may be really appropriate. And I think that's really important because I think now women have got so used to being offered patches, gels, spray, that they've almost forgotten that oral route. And for so many women, actually, it works really well. That's what I'm taking. And I have to say it works fantastic for me. Yeah. And currently in the midst of the HRT, um, shortages there isn't a shortage of oral treatment yeah, but, but the other reason that that if we can't provide all women with with oral treatment if we have those supplies the other reason they might not be getting it is this whole thing in the UK where you have to go through local hoops and then there's national prescribing and which is why it constantly gets described as a postcode lottery because if you're in one particular area you're allowed to be provided with certain HRT and if you're in another area it's different and so there's no sort of blanket ruling which just to me seems to add to the confusion don't you think Paula? A hundred percent so it's kind of propagating all of the problems and the myths associated with HRT and we, we need to invest in new products so when new products come to market after they've been subjected to randomised controlled trials, they have to be adopted onto a secondary care formulary before they're then put forward to an area prescribing committee to go onto the GP formulary, and that could take years. So that's preventing access to new treatments, and pharmaceutical companies will stop investing in new treatments if that process isn't speeded up. And there's no place for having one area that can't access one treatment, and it might be a bordering area where the patient can access the same treatment that's totally wrong you you were explaining the different kinds of hrt and i think we stalled on yeah. on oral um, okay. so talk us through the the patches and the marina and the okay. taking progesterone at night which i think helps with sleep i'm not yeah it talk does us through it okay so there are patches now patches um can be estrogen on its own and that estrogen on its own can be combined with a progestogen but there are also patches where the progestogen component is part of the patch so the patient would have two weeks of estrogen only and then two weeks of a combination patch and then they start the process again and oh, they would complicated they would, when you've got brain yeah, fog that's very complicated, complicated. <laughs> yeah. uh, they just follow the pack Um, And then there are continuous combined patches where all the patches have two hormones and those are bleed-free preparations and they are generally started when the patient hasn't had a period for 12 months. If one kind of HRT doesn't work for you, does that mean all kinds of HRT won't work for you? No. And it's very clearly part of the NICE guidance that care should be individualised. So if a patch doesn't work, then try a different preparation. You might try a gel or a spray. Or some women just don't absorb hormones through the skin. And for that small population, then using HRT implants can be life-changing. You talked a lot about oestrogen and progesterone. What about testosterone? Because... um, that's also very hard to access in the UK for a lot of women. And it's seen very much to be a a, 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 a hormone replacement for men, not for women. In fact, I think it's licensed as, as only for, for, for men. So why is that so hard to access? And uh, does it also have downsides? Could you, could, if you can't use oestrogen uh, uh, hormone replacement, can you use testosterone to give you a bit of energy and a bit of libido and whatever else it might offer I don't know tell me so um female ovaries as I said at the beginning produce lots of testosterone they do it less efficiently from about the age of 20 onwards so naturally as you 
get older, your sex drive would decline. If that becomes an issue and the patient has a low free androgen index, that's a blood test, it's logical to provide them with testosterone replacement therapy. And that's normally done after replacing estrogen and providing a progestogen if the patient has a, a, an intact uterus or endometrial tissue. And sometimes we do provide testosterone without doing a baseline blood test because, you know, really what you're looking for at baseline is excessively high levels. And if the patient's got low libido, she's not very unlikely to have high levels. The chances of improving libido with testosterone are, are high. And longer term, women often don't need daily treatment with testosterone. They may only require that two or three times a week. Um, and again it's not dangerous or scary but I think it's been difficult for GPs because there's not a licensed product now in our area we've just agreed that GPs can continue to prescribe testosterone that's initiated in secondary care so that's a that's an improvement it's a step in the right direction what are the risk the risk factors for going on HRT so overweight would be one probably abuses from alcohol or smoking what are the maybe too much sugar intake what is the 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 things they can change the most common and most significant complication associated with hrt is blood clots either in the leg or the lung and as we said before women who are using transdermal hrt don't have an increase in risk but they they may have their own inherent risk if they have risk factors such as obesity or smoking you know we can we can do our best to support women and i think you know sometimes starting those women on transdermal hrt and saying i want to support you to help you lose weight it's going to be difficult because it is it's a downward spiral isn't it when you feel terrible your chances of just eating the wrong things to make you feel better not to have the energy really to exercise is always there in the background so i think sometimes i will start somebody on HRT even although they've got risk factors to get them to a point where they feel well enough to make lifestyle changes. And that's I think very important that you don't only go on HRT but you also change your lifestyle. And you Absolutely have yeah. So I would recommend a healthy diet first of all that um, you know people try to put time aside to, to be able to cook healthy food. Most most Women then in that situation are unlikely to be deficient. They're probably deficient in vitamin D because universally we are. And so vitamin D supplementation is useful. And I think cholesterol measurement is useful because you wouldn't necessarily know if you had a high cholesterol. Um, we don't need blood tests in women probably over 40 who are symptomatic. They can be provided with a trial of some form of HRT. And after three months, if they feel better and their symptoms are controlled, then that gives you a good indication that they were experiencing um, you know, early menopause or perimenopausal symptoms. What proportion of women would you say can't use HRT for medical reasons? So I think it will be a small proportion of women, but the most important group are those women with hormone-dependent cancers, whether that's breast cancer or endometrial cancer or ovarian cancer. And those complex women, I think, should be managed by a multidisciplinary team, which is one of the things I really love about my job. I'm in a tertiary referral centre. All cases are discussed with a team. I never make that decision on my own. And we also work really closely with the breast surgeons. Indeed. But as you've just said, it's a small minority. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is. I'd love, I'd love to know. From I don't you think any, I don't think anybody knows the actual figures okay, because a lot, a lot we, of those. If sorry. we reverse the figures that I gave you earlier about HRT use in the UK, 550,000 women taking it compared to 16 million not. 
Do you understand why, despite the fact that the majority of women are able to take it, they're not? So those, I think, are the women that we should be focusing on, the women that have no no medical issues. They are the easier group. That's who we are trying to focus on. I think in England, it seems to be really not under control, this topic at all. I think it's different in each country. But what do you think would be really good to see in the next 12 months from the British Menopause Society? What would you like to see? I think realistically, what we need are GPs with a special interest to provide menopause management for groups of practices, because with the best will in the world, you can't make all GPs interested in menopause management, although it affects more than 50% of the population and women are going to live a third of their lives hopefully, once they're um, postmenopausal. But I think realistically, if we could get an interested group of GPs to provide for other GPs, we would dramatically improve care. And I think better access to HRT products, no postcode lottery, good standardised information would, would all help the current situation enormously. Would it be okay if GPs didn't know about periods? No, of course, it's definitely not. So why is it okay if they don't know about menopause? Uh, Oh, it's not okay if they don't know about menopause, but I think... I'm trying to be pra- practical here and I think we're we're much more likely to engage with interested GPs. So you might have a GP who specialises in dermatology or diabetes or women's health and that women's health specialist GP will manage women with menstrual disorders and with menopausal symptoms. Um, and I think that that's a more realistic goal than trying to get all GPs to be interested in menopause. In Germany, for example, lots of people are GPs are specialized in anti-aging and these are the most educated people to go to for HRTs because, you know, it not only helps you with all your symptoms of, you know, anxiety, hot flesh, etc., but it also helps with your skin, with your firmness, with your weight controlling, with everything, you know, you stay younger if you have the if you have the hormones. In our first episode, we were talking to Dr. Sharon Malone, and she has a model, Aloe, which prescribes uh, women who call them, and they call in the medication to their doorsteps. Is this something um, we could maybe arrange in other countries like the UK or Germany or France? Mm -hmm. I think menopause lends itself to remote consultations. Um, With the pandemic as a positive thing that came out of that, we've done lots of menopause consultations actually by telephone. And it's not ideal for everyone, but it at least means that that patient can access care, whereas they wouldn't have been able to come to the hospital for, you know, at least a year out of that two year period. So I am totally on board for any form of remote consultation, whether that's a video consultation or by telephone. Um, You know, and yeah, I think there are other ways of educating GPs like What I do in Liverpool is a a Zoom clinic for GPs on a Monday so that they can log on. It's not a presentation, but they can discuss cases. And, you know, there are lots of different ways to manage every single menopausal woman. So it's not just um, one form of HRT. We can we can talk about different choices, different solutions and what to do if the first solution doesn't help the patient. So I think that kind of communication is really important. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? to be able to do it online, you know, because then you obviously you can utilize the time better of the fewer people that there are who know about menopause and 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 do, you know, online prescribing. That should be the goal here. We have big missions. 
to accomplish. <laughs> we do. Thank you, Paula, so much for joining us today. Um, wonderful to hear your take on everything and um, your perfect expertise on stuff. Thank you. Episode 3 of the Dr. Barbara Sturm podcast is available now and is all about menopause and the workplace. It is with the amazing Sharon MacArthur or Miss Menopause and looks at everything you need to know about navigating work and menopause. The two saddest things women say to me on a daily basis in the workplace is this, I thought I had early onset Alzheimer's. And the other outrageous thing is I felt so alone. I felt so alone. I'm like, you're in the least exclusive club on the planet. So why, oh why, do women believe that they're the only ones this is happening to? I'm outraged. That's why I do what I do. But this can't be happening. The Dr. Barbara Sturm podcast is a Feast Collective production in association with Finch and Partners. The producer is Catherine Carr and the executive producer is Kate Taylor. Do come and chat to us about the series on Instagram at Dr. Barbara Sturm and Mariella Fostrup. As you can probably tell, we really, really want more women to know about the menopause and to have the power that knowledge can bring. So if you are enjoying the series, please spread the word.